So the idea on this talk is that I would uh, move into appreciative joy or mudita and uh, hopefully um, equanimity or upeka, the last of the two, the four Brahma Viharas, the last two. Um, So we'll see what happens. I wanted to begin with a very simple story. It's incredibly simple. (laughs) Um, On my retreat that I just did, um, you know, I just, I ended a sitting kind of feeling just not super disconnected, but a, a little disconnected. And I went outside and um, saw this ground bird that um, they're called Franklins. Um, and in some ways, they're incredibly easy to not pay attention to. You know, not only are they a ground bird, but they're a brown that in the desert, they kind of, um, they they don't stand out. So you could say that they're amazingly ordinary, more ordinary than a robin, because robins, of course, have that orange breast. But these are, and they have a very weird sound that is a little grating on the ear. You know, so... um, If you were feeling a little off or a little disconnected, they might not be the being you would choose to look to to kind of get a little juice. Um, So I was watching this bird... um, go up on the roof of my house and um, it looked like it was looking for its friend. And I could tell that um, (laughs) it was like she couldn't find her friend. And it was just really interesting to watch her go back and forth on the top of the roof looking for her friend, the other bird that she hangs out with a lot. Um, And I I noticed that I wasn't really interested in this bird, but I found her behavior interesting to the point where I never really looked close up at the coloring and actually, it's a very drab brown, um, but right around the neck, um, there was a dark black and the salmon color outlining that black, if you look closely. Uh, and just that that little bit of looking more closely, um, I, I, I am describing such a subtle shift. You know, it was like I felt more connected with this bird as I got um, more interested in the subtle coloring to the point where it wasn't just a brown kind of ordinary bird, but just incredibly beautiful. 
And uh, that feeling of disconnected uh, went from, you know, again, it was subtle, but I felt very connected again. And I feel that the Brahma Viharas, these practices that we've been doing, are, are, are like that. It's like we sometimes might get a very um, intense experience. But the idea is also that one can have these very um, subtle, quiet experiences. And somehow this this story just reminded me of another little story, and I don't even know totally how to connect it in. But um, as one gets older, it's like uh, some of us find that we get a lot more wrinkles. And, you know, there's different ways that we age, but I got the wrinkles. And so um, when I first moved into this house, my bathroom upstairs had a very bright um, light bulb. And for the first two years I lived there, I was like, I'd walk in and I'd look in the mirror and I'd be like, oh, God, this is like really hard, you know. And then that light bulb went out and um, I replaced it with an incredibly low wattage bulb. And I'm so much happier. (laughs) You know, and it's like... I feel like writing AARP or, you know, like the retirement magazine on my ideas on how to age well, you know. But it's like... (laughs) But it's so much easier for me to connect with my looks now with this mirror, you know, and this light. And I think that, you know, life is so interesting. I think, um, again, that felt like such an ordinary way of connecting with aging, for example. It's not like some amazing thing, but actually it works really well. It helps me connect more. Um, and I remember this poem by Nanao Saki. He came out with a book, um, and then I think the name of the poem is Old Age, uh, but all I remember from it is he says, Break the Mirror. You know, so I'm not quite there yet, but I can I get it. It's like okay, low wattage, maybe we'll just get rid of it. You know, and that's great. It's like it's to remember, you know. We don't have to take it so personally. And I I guess because we're moving into the appreciative joy, I really appreciate that um, I figured that out. Like I giggle when I go in the bathroom because it's so much fun. (laughs) 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 So the... um, I think one way to hold the four Brahma Viharas that the Buddha taught um, as a package, not in different isolated units, um, is to understand that we're born into a world of vast joys and sorrows. Like that it's so unfathomable and it's so vast and we all share it. 
So we've talked about, you know, that basic, the loving kindness. And the reason I started with very subtle, ordinary ways of connecting or shifting things is um, just that simplicity of connection changes everything. And, And that's something to explore. It's just when we feel disconnected, and when we remember to be connected. That simple. And the loving-kindness practice is all about that simplicity of connection. To the point where if we just can't feel loving-kindness, and at the least if we could put our hand on our heart center, that's simple, but it often is very effective. That that simple. And if you've gotten a taste of some connection to kindness, you'll know how important it is. You know, for yourself and others. You know, it it's like it's so important, this this simple kind of connection. And orienting that connected heart-mind to the pain in the world and caring for it. What a practice, the practice of compassion for oneself and others. And to remember that the, the compassion is pleasant. It's pleasant. That's how you know. You know if you're having an unpleasant experience trying to care for pain that it's moving into sorrow or grief or pity. And that doesn't mean it's wrong or bad. It just means that it isn't compassion. Because compassion, it feels good to care about pain. To care about it. The awareness is caring. It's not imprisoned by it. And then mudita, empathetic joy or appreciative joy. You know, to you sort of wish you could tell everybody about it, like that we can practice appreciating the joy in the world. Wouldn't you wish that, you know, like just then, if you turn the radio on, there'd be a mudita, five minutes, you know, news? Really, it's just like, because you can just turn on any kind of media and it's just like, it can be a quick drop. (laughs) (laughs) And how much can you take? How long can you maintain the compassion before the heart starts to close? Because we actually do need the balance. And the heart closing, it's protecting us. It's okay. It's not a bad thing. We think it's a bad thing, but it's not. It's like, (laughs) One time I was... um, sitting a three-month retreat and um, with Sayada Upandita, and I, I've had a number of um, root canals, and I could feel my tooth dying. Um, 
And he didn't really want me to go to the dentist. You know, he, he's of that ilk. It's good to die meditating. A root canal's nothing, right? You know, so, and so I thought about it, because I knew I could handle that pain. Um, but I went into him, and I was like, you know, I don't want to lose my tooth. You know, I just, I'm going to go there. I'll just get it opened up. And I won't finish the, you know, I won't go back for treatments until the end of the retreat. I just want to go do that. And and so he said, you know, he knew I, I knew he knew I was going to do it. So he then completely switched and he said, oh, well then treat your practice like a baby cow. And then just take care of your practice, you know, like a mother or father, you know, parent, treat it, really protect yourself and, you know, take care when you go out. This was halfway through the retreat and I was really quiet. And, you know, I was driving to this appointment and even the road, I was driving on the road and it was like kind of aging as I was driving and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, this is going to be quite the day, you know, because I had to go to a dentist and then a specialist and what was hard was the Muzak waiting in the you know, the office, it was like, I was just so quiet, and it seemed like I was sitting there like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> you know, just like, it was so unpleasant, you know, and then finally it was like, you know what, I'll just note hearing and see if I can deal with it, but um, for me at that point in time, it was really hard to be with it. It was, you know, the the drilling, everything else was fine. It was that music that was so intense. Now, it probably wouldn't bother me even pretty far into a retreat or, you know, but at that point in time, and I just had to keep um, remembering it's just hearing, just hearing, just hearing. Uh, But when you get quiet and you move into areas of life that um, are out of our control, uh, they can be very grating. And learning that, you know, how to deal with it. Just, it's unpleasant. It's just unpleasant. And finally, toward the, you know, I waited a very long time in this um, waiting room. I just was finally like, okay with it. Okay, it's just unpleasant. It's okay. So things are as they are. You know, you move from orienting the um, connected, kind, heart or just simply connected heart to the pain in the world, caring about it, shifting to the joy in the world and appreciating it or feeling gratitude. And then the the equanimity is said to be the most difficult to understand. It's, it's an unconditional acceptance of the vast range of joys and sorrows in this world without closing the heart. So the heart stays connected. But it's, it, there's that deep understanding present that things are as they are. So if you were doing the four Brahma Viharas, for example, for the per- person in the room next to you to your right... And then the person next to you to your left, when you do all four Brahma Viharas, you just tune into that there is a vast range of joy and sorrow that this person has experienced, that it's a given. It's how it is. And you don't have to know 
the story. You just know that that's the truth of how things are. And you, you see if you can just attune to that range and accept that that's how it is. Things are just as they are. Things are just as they are. And then you can watch the near enemy or the, you know, the experience of closing down or denial, passivity, right? It looks like equanimity, but it isn't. The heart shuts numb, which is fine. It's like the same experience with the loving kindness. You can see how we can see it shift to attach love. And we know that it isn't that. We're saying, no, that's not wrong or bad. It just isn't loving kindness. We can see the heart close, or we can see it react to the pleasure or joy with attachment. We can see it react to the pain in the world with fear or aversion. Not bad or wrong, right? But not equanimity. Unconditional acceptance is peace with how things are. We want peace. So badly. But we have to learn how to understand exactly what it is. When we say, may you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, or may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, or we, inner harm is considered the five hindrances. Interesting, right? That, and the, and the, and so if you think of outer harm, you know, if some, <laughs> if somebody's aversive, uh, they can create some harm, right? They might say something that really hurts. So when you're saying, "May I be safe and protected from inner harm," it means that we're we're wanting to be safe from our own anger. We're wanting to be safe from our own greed. And if you look at the pain in your life, inner or outer, it's usually a result of the reactive mind. So this equanimity, it's called holy equanimity because it's about learning how to really be peaceful without being a doormat without being passive. So starting with the empathetic joy, the experience that seems so much like it but isn't, is attached joy. Um, One of my favorite examples of this, um, last year when I was teaching at Sea to Sky, up at the Tibetan Center there, there was a day like, you know, the most quintessential autumn day. It was so perfect, an autumn day. (laughs) It was incredible. And then the weather started to change. You know, it got cold and windy. And you could just feel everybody going, no, not autumn, not yet, right? And you, it's just like, oh, you want it to last. That's the near enemy of appreciative joy, right? It's like we, we, we're attached to that high, that 
loveliness of the day and we don't want it to change. Or over-enthusiasm is another experience that can seem so much like appreciative joy, but we're not appreciative. We're attached. We're holding on, right? And I think it's often interesting to take a look at the imagery of the Buddha, not not you can relate to it or not, but there this this imagery isn't like somebody's going off like a kite, right? They're not like flying off giddy. There's a serenity, right? There's the the equanimity's there, as well as the other Brahma Viharas. There's a serenity, there's a peacefulness with that range of joy and sorrow. It takes practice to open to the pleasant because if you shut down, you shut down to the pleasure and pain. If you open, you open to the pleasure and pain and you have to learn how to work with the pleasure passing, right? So, you know, it's easier to say, well, I'm just not going to feel it at all. Then you don't have to go through it. And the opposite of appreciative joy or empathetic joy is jealousy or envy. Not that acceptable an emotion, really. You know, if you look at Cinderella, (laughs) you know, boy, that wicked witch, man, you know, we don't like her. And yet, it's such a um, powerful emotion that we all have to learn how to work with. Years ago, I read a book called Cinderella and Her Sisters, and it was by a couple, Barry and something, Ulanoff. Ulanoff was the last name. And I remember one sentence from it that was so powerful. They said that gratitude is dependency acknowledged. Wow. Breathing. We can't go that long without air. And how interested are we in the breath? I mean, I think that's the most maybe fascinating thing about us. Hold our head underwater for a while, and we're going to get very interested in the breath. Or when I was with my dad at the end, you know, and it's like, when is that last one going? So powerful. Breath. You know, I today, this morning, when we were doing appreciative joy at the guided sitting, it's like we have shelter. But do we want to feel that dependency and be grateful for it? Well, obviously not. It's not that easy for us to live in gratitude. We forget.
I got these new shoes before coming up here in Vancouver that you can walk in water. <laughs> and the lady that sold them to me, she's like, I just walk in the ocean. and You know, they're not boots though, right? So I made a little mistake today, but it was fun. Um, but it almost wasn't fun because I didn't really want to have wet feet. Um, that I made a, you know, a, a the strategy. I saw the low tide out there. Um, forgot about the oyster beds, you know, and you know, et cetera. And I forgot the tide would be coming in. Little minor details, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I years ago, when I first came out here, I went out there once and um, saw like a lots of purple starfish. So I thought, okay, you know, that's the goal. <laughs> and kind of. Um, you know, you get out there, and it's very interesting. Didn't realize the tide had come in so much, and tried to get back. And uh, I was so excited about my new shoes, you know. And and so the near enemy of empathetic joy is over exuberance. That's another one. And I was so over exuberant that I didn't really pay attention to the tide coming in. And it's it's really nothing. There, you know, it's not winter. It's warm enough. But I got to this place where. Um, I was trying to get through, like get back, and it. I w- I hope no one saw it because it was so. I, I was like on this little rock, and I would. I actually bent on, and I was holding on, and I was trying to get to the next one, and <laughs> I fell in. <laughs> and I fell in, and I fell. I just kept falling in, and it was a long way across that place that when I first went by it, it there was no water, right? But I love that moments where I don't want to fall in, and what is that? You know, it was nothing. It was actually fun when I fell in, you know, and I had so much fun. But it's that interesting place, and again, when you look at, like, it was so simple, the joy. And the joy, I actually had really wet feet, and, you know, it wasn't that comfortable, but I was so happy. Strange, huh? How we are. That resistance to falling falling in. <laughs> so when we eat, gratitude, dependency acknowledged, you know, is it possible at least to feel that vulnerability for part of the meal? to know that we need to eat. You know, that basic. And sometimes how painful that can be. And how amazing that we can receive it well and be grateful. I really think being able to care about our bodies and have that as the motivation for eating is so important. And maybe, you know, no matter what we look like, to love our belly and to like really, maybe at the end of the meal, touch our belly maybe and receive it. Receive the food with gratitude. You know, these are, it's, this might sound simple, but we don't usually feel full. We usually want more. 
or we think we ate too much, or, you know, all that. But it's like, did we really receive it? And why not? Why didn't we? Again, so fundamental and so basic, and yet, huh, what, what are we doing? <laughs> Where were we when we ate the meal? And which, which food did we pick? Did we not eat the bread because of blah, blah, blah? And not, I don't mean it in terms of um, gluten-free or not, not that level. I mean just like we have these ideas that this is better than this or this is better than that because of this and that. And it's like um, a lot of suffering. I suppose I see so much suffering around receiving nourishment. One of the things that I um, is also important, I think, about jealousy and envy is <clears throat> that usually when someone is jealous of us or we're jealous of somebody, we want their goodness. And actually, we actually can't give our goodness to someone. And we can't get it from somebody. And I think that's why it's so utterly painful. Because in a way you can't protect yourself from someone wanting yours. <laughs> what, but what you can do is hold on to yours. And you can encourage other people to hold on to theirs. And this is an interesting teaching in terms of the loving kindness, compassion, and empathetic joy, is that when you learn them as a classical concentration practice, you're meant to hold on to them. When the metta happens, you're actually meant to hold on to it. We're not teaching it like that as much, or at all, you know, but it's like we, there is an important lesson in that, and that um, it's important to know that you can. and that that can be a protection. And that leads also to worthiness and worthlessness, because when we understand that we have goodness and that others have goodness, then we tend to be able to see our own worthiness and others' worthiness. to the point, the extreme point of um, understanding everyone's worthiness to be fully enlightened. say every year I come up here um, I at least like to just touch into the um, there's uh, three books that are um, Haida Gwaii stories that were translated by Robert Brinkhurst 
And there are actually um, stories that were written down from the original Haida Gwaii language that uh, John Swanton, an anthropologist, wrote down by sound. So it wasn't like he, he wrote them so that somebody in the future could translate them. Interesting, right? So um, he went there in October of 1900. And this is what Robert Brinkhurst wrote about him. He said, he went up there wholly unprepared, yet fully equipped. Um, and he stepped into a world in which dogfish, geese, and killer whales, killer whales are bearers of the heart's truth. Robert Brinkhurst wrote that. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. So that every being you see, it's possible that they are bearers of the heart's truth for us. It's such a beautiful way to see it, right? Or to language it. Um, Bears of the heart's truth, as well as potent agents of creation, guides, and escorts through the maze of space and time. So it's it's the first book is called Story is a Story is Sharp as a Knife. Classical Haida myth tellers. So, you know, it's like old myth tellers that somehow, fortunately, were translated. And I just always want to say, you know, just to be so fortunate to read one of these stories is a gift. Because you can take in that sense of another being being a bearer of the heart's truth and how important that is for us on the earth right now. Or we won't protect it if you don't see it as sacred. So another way to say that from the um, loving-kindness perspective, and as we know, that a loon could be your benefactor or the sky, a spiritual friend, right? And if you look at, like, where, when I said I walked out of my home and I, I felt disconnected, where did I find connection? With a bird that I, I tend to overlook because it's so ordinary, but actually it became a spiritual friend in that moment, right? Not fantastical, <laughs> not intense, just ah, feeling connected. And in, in this tradition to know that your spiritual friend doesn't have to be human, or your benefactor, you know, it's right there for us to understand that and how important it is. Again, because I think contemporary life can be so alienating, wherever we feel the connection, right? A puddle, the sound of a train, can be anything. For Thoreau, 
It was the humming of a telegraph pole. So I'd like to read that. At the entrance of the deep cut, I heard the telegraph wire vibrating like an Aeolian harp. It reminded me suddenly, reservedly, with a beautiful paucity of communication, even silently. Such was its effect on my thoughts. It reminded me, I say, with a certain pathetic moderation of what's finer and deeper stirrings I was susceptible, which grandly set all argument and dispute aside. A triumphant, though transient, exhibition of the truth. It told me by the faintest imaginable strain, it told me by the faintest strain, a human ear can hear yet conclusively and past all refutation that there were higher, infinitely higher planes of life which it behooved me never to forget. As I was entering the deep cut, the wind, which was conveying a message to me from heaven, dropped it on the wire of the telegraph, which it vibrated as it passed. I instantly sat down on a stone at the foot of the telegraph pole and attended to the communication. (laughs) It merely said, Bear in mind, child, and never for an instant forget that there are higher planes, infinitely higher planes of life that this thou art now traveling on. Know that the goal is distant and is upward and is worthy of all your life's effort to attain to. And then it ceased. And though I sat some minutes longer, I heard nothing more. Not as well known, a quotation from Thoreau, right? But so important. He had such a deep experience, spiritual experience, with the humming of a telegraph wire. And that's old. It's not like they're saying a telephone pole, a telegraph wire. It could be the refrigerator hum. Really, we have to be very careful about, like I said, the example of the ordinary bird. But really, it's just if your heart is connected in any moment we can receive the truth of life. Mm. A triumphant, though transient, truth of life, right? I love that he sat there wanting more, right? <laughs> he just sat there hoping he'd get another message. <laughs> That's how we are, you know. <laughs> hmm. 
first saw people bowing in the meditation hall, you know, I, wow, I just wasn't thinking I'd ever be up for that. You know, it just seemed so foreign to me. Um, and there are different um, ways, I think, that we all have in this earth of expressing reverence. You know, so uh, there's, an, there's a gesture of reverence called Anjali in Pali, and it's putting your palms together. And uh, just kind of being reverent. So it's not a full bow. Uh, and one time when I was exploring all this years ago, I, got, I saw that the word goodbye means, may God be with you. And you know how it, it's shortened, right? But what did we lose in the shortened version of it, right? How sad. You know, so I think that, you know, there's a way in which we lose that sense of reverence. There's a Zen teacher that once said, you know, old Zen teacher, um, sometimes I bow to the dust. Gratitude, right? Reverence. So the full body bowing and putting your forehead on the floor or ground as um, when I looked it up, because I wanted to understand the definition of it in Pali was um, making a full offering of your body and mind and heart. Just, it's a full offering of your body, mind, and heart. And that kind of intrigued me, and I just started doing it as a practice. And I started, (laughs) there was a certain point where I liked, um, my back was hurting, and I just liked the exercise. You know, it was a long day, you know. I'm not kidding. And I loved bowing to the flowers after a while. Um, And I just started kind of bringing myself into it. And I just started noticing that, no matter what mind state I was in, no matter what was happening in my life year after year, that there was something about putting my forehead on the earth and just going, okay, this is what's happening. Oh, my sister's dying, you know, bowing. Oh, um, something beautiful just happened for my sister, you know, the other sister. And you, you see what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, oh, fear, bowing. It, it's, it's, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying that um, getting that it's an offering is very beautiful. In that time period where I was reading about it, um, I read a book on, it was by Barry Lopez about being in the um, tundra of Canada. And he described watching a sunset with great reverence. And he had his hands in his pockets. And that for him, that was his gesture of reverence. And I thought, how wonderfully irreverently reverent that is, right? We're so casual, you know, that, okay, (laughs) yeah, just like, right, 
cool, you know, there's something. And I just think no matter, no matter how we are, like, okay, maybe that's some of our way of expressing reverence. It doesn't matter what it looks on the outside. What matters is what it feels like on the inside. Appreciative joy. The thing I miss the most over and over about leaving retreat is that I have less moments of gratitude. I'm so busy. It's like alms. You know the word alms? It's like I'll say alms. Alms, alms would be just, ah, getting to feel grateful more. And we all know, if you look at your life, when did you feel just that such gratitude that it makes you cry? It's, it's the deepest spiritual emotion. It's when we have really, something has let go. Well, what has let go? The identification with aversion. The identification with attachment. It's that presence without the greed, hatred, and delusion. And it feels wonderful to be grateful, empathetic joy. And I'm describing a range because I I started with that little ground bird that hardly anyone notices because you can feel that kind of very quiet, appreciative joy or very deep, deep, like Thoreau's experience with the telegraph wire. So the three feral cats... At a certain point, I started noticing that they really like to watch the sunset. Maybe let's say two. <laughs> the, one of them likes to go and walk about and doesn't come home very much. Uh, but there's two that really like, and sometimes, no, sometimes there's three, really. It's amazing. Um, and uh, so it be, it has become kind of especially on retreat, it's become kind of an important part of the day. And it's not a long walk or a long thing. It's like just, they like to go partway down the driveway. They don't want to be by the door. It's like they like to go partway down the driveway and they sit there. Like, and they're never like that. Um, And when Jesse moved into the uh, room downstairs, like he started noticing this and uh, one time he came out when we were sitting there and sat down and he said um, I wonder if cats see the stars you know because it is odd actually when you think about it that these feral cats like to sit there and watch the sunset they're not domesticated right and so um, I looked it up this is the beauty of Googling, right? (laughs) And it said that humans may see up to 6,000 stars. 
and that cats can see 40,000. And owls can see over a million. And, you know, this is a little thing, but it's like a big thing in that, you know, no wonder they like sitting there at sunset. You know, like we see hardly any, and they watch the stars come out. It must be awesome, right? (laughs) Wow. And it just makes going out there at sunset even more fun. You know, it's like, wow, you guys. Then you can be jealous, right? (laughs) That far enemy of Mudita, right? It's like, wow, the lucky bombs. I can see 40,000, you know? And it's, it's so cool just to share that with them. Simple. Appreciative joy is often very simple. And it's one of the beauties of what we learn about retreat. It, it, we tend to be so busy and then we need something intense to, over, you know, to balance. But actually, if you start to get a little quieter and make a little space in your life, you start seeing that it doesn't take much. Very little. But you have to make the space for it, for that grace to happen. Hmm. There's a great poet named Saigyo from Japan. He lived from 1118 to 1190. And the Japanese language, uh, the word for friend is tomo. And this book is an old book, but they have it. They have the poems in um, Japanese and English. So... Not the Japanese pictographs, but the words. And so you go through the book and you can see that there's so many words called, you know, tomo. And they're referring to sky or rock or just anything. Tomo. So I'd like to share this poem. I've read it before here, but um, because emotions can be tomo. And emotions you wouldn't necessarily expect A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over of the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. That's deep. (laughs) That is so deep. I'll read it again. A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. Melancholy, tomo, friend. Mm. 
And one more. Sometimes there's a little introduction to the poem. With my mind made up to go worship at Aki Shrine, I was in a place called Takatomi Cove, where I waited for a gale to subside. The moon filtered through the reed roof of my hut. Tomo is, a, in this case, is a, the roof. Okay. Pounding waves are breakers of my heart. So I spend the night in bed with the moon's light that slips in through the gaps in my reed hut's roof. So just picture, there's a gale going on and there's a holes in his roof. But you have to read it several times. Pounding waves are breakers of my heart. So I spend the night in bed with the moon's light that slips in through the gaps in my reed hut's roof. What a way to live. But you know, he must have suffered a lot to understand that. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.